When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, a typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Voices for Justice is a podcast that uses adult language and discusses sensitive and potentially triggering topics, including violence, abuse, and murder. This podcast may not be appropriate for younger audiences. All parties are innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. Some names have been changed or omitted per their request or for safety purposes. Listener discretion is advised. My name is Sarah Turney, and this is Voices for Justice. Today's episode is part two of my coverage of the 1991 yogurt shop murders from Austin, Texas. So if you haven't listened to part one, I definitely recommend going back and listening to that first, otherwise this episode won't make a whole lot of sense. In part one, I left you just after the girls' parents were notified of their deaths after they were found deceased in the I Can't Believe It's Yogurt shop. In this episode, I will be covering the investigation, a slew of false confessions, and eventual arrests. Because in the next decade or so, there will be a lot of missteps that I think are really important to talk about. Because unfortunately, the investigators in this case would not only fail to get justice for the girls, but create more victims in the process through false accusations and, in my opinion, downright dirty police work. Like with part one, we have a lot to cover, so let's get into it. By the time he got the case of the yogurt shop murders, Sergeant John Jones from the Austin Police Department had already dealt with over 150 death investigations. But Jennifer, Eliza, Sarah, and Amy would be his very last four. John Jones didn't always plan to be in law enforcement. He was actually a music education major at the University of Texas when he lost his job waiting tables. He saw that the Austin Police Department was looking for cadets and applied thinking it would only be temporary. But once he compared the pay and benefits of being a cop versus being a music teacher, he decided to stay on the force. Like I briefly mentioned in the last episode, John Jones was partnered with a more senior officer, Mike Huckabay. The two men had already developed a relationship through working on other cases together, so Jones actually put in a request for Huckabay to be assigned to the yogurt shop murders with him. Both men were fathers of daughters, but above all, they trusted each other. Jones and Huckabay actually made a pact when they first got the case. They decided that they weren't going to be trigger-happy, they wouldn't make an arrest before they had concrete evidence to make charges stick permanently. Unfortunately, this was not a sentiment that everyone on the team would share. Like I touched on in part one, Huckabay was really known for his negotiation skills. So, it was decided that he would handle all interviews and negotiations while Jones focused on the technical side of things. 
Despite being a pretty seasoned officer, Huckabee would later admit how hard the case really hit him, stating, quote, I saw things in Vietnam and thought nothing would ever match that. Well, this matches that because it's in Austin, Texas, right down the street from where we live. End quote. After meeting with arson investigator Melvin Stahl on the night of the murders, they knew that they were in dire need of outside help. Way back in 1991, the Austin Police Department didn't really have a forensic unit. They didn't have people in-house like a ballistics expert or someone to help with blood spatter or hair and fiber analysis. They basically had someone who did fingerprint matching, and that was it. Their only option was the Texas Department of Public Safety's lab. And it, and unfortunately also its staff, were pretty new and inexperienced. But they sent the head of DNA operation Irma Rios to the scene. According to her later court testimony, this would be maybe her second arson case. She would also admit that although DPS did provide her with a handbook of all the proper procedures to follow while processing a crime scene like the yogurt shop murders, she wasn't really familiar with them. Another major player in this operation would be Charles Meyer from the ATF National Response Team. He and Jones worked together previously on another arson homicide case. So Jones knew his work, and he also knew that with the ATF, he could get access to a lot of things that he wouldn't be able to otherwise. This would include the Violent Criminal Apprehension Program, or VICAP for short. If you weren't familiar with this program, it's basically this huge nationwide database for law enforcement that collects and analyzes violent crimes. So someone could plug in things like arson, homicide, sexual assault, and pull up similar cases. That way, they can compare and contrast to see if the perpetrator might have been involved with another similar crime in the past and determine if they had a repeat offender on their hands. This way, they can not only hopefully gather more clues to figure out who they thought did this, but also possibly prevent something like this from happening again in the future. So basically, it's a very cool and powerful tool, especially for 1991. And Jones really wanted access to it. But unfortunately, the yogurt shop murders would be considered unique, not matching to any other crime in the system. However, in addition to getting access to VICAP, with Charles Meyer from the ATF on board, Jones and Huckabee would also have access to things like polygraph experts, behavioral analysis, and wiretaps. So even though the arson investigator was a little nervous about bringing in a federal agency so quickly, thinking it might kind of upset the team, he gave in to Jones and backed him up on the ask. And a few hours after Jones's request, they at least had a few more extra officials that they wouldn't have had otherwise to help them analyze this extremely complicated scene. So let's talk about what they found. They were able to recover the 380 shell casing from the pistol used to shoot Amy Ayers for the second time. This was found in a clogged drain near the main sink in the prep area by where Amy was found. After the smoke and steam cleared, they also found a large amount of blood at the scene. This led them to believe that the girls most likely died from their gunshot wounds before the fire was even set. They also noticed that there was a lot more damage on the items that were closer to the ceiling versus the items that were closer to the ground. Containers on shelves, a mop handle, and even a ladder with its two top steps completely melted off indicated that the fire started above ground level. From there, they believed that it spread across the ceiling of the shop and then down to the ground. 
and they estimate that the fire reached over 1,200 degrees Fahrenheit, or about 650 degrees Celsius. Melvin Stahl's report would confirm that the fire started on that metal shelving unit, the one that was next to Jennifer and the back door, which would correlate with Jennifer having the worst burns. He would also confirm that it was most likely that Jennifer Harbison's body was originally stacked on top of her sister Sarah and Eliza before somehow rolling off. Like we see in a lot of investigations, there were definitely some missteps. One of the most crucial, in my opinion, being the fact that they didn't collect as many fingerprints from the scene as they probably should have. The woman in charge of collecting fingerprints was Rachel Reif, and she would later admit that she didn't really dust for fingerprints in all of the areas you might expect people to touch, but instead, she pretty much just took the prints that she could see with her naked eye. The team also failed to wear booties or keep a log of who was coming and going to be able to cross-reference for contamination and they didn't even go through the trash at the shop. They also improperly stored crime scene evidence and eventually lost quite a few items. The melted I-can't-believe-it's-yogurt-shop phone would actually be misplaced and later recovered from an Austin Fire Department training center. The metal shelving unit where the fire supposedly originated was wrapped in crime scene tape, but Rios admitted that they actually used it to store other pieces of evidence. This shelving unit, along with the melted ladder and the charred mop and mop bucket, were later moved to an alleyway, but then they just seemed to disappear into thin air. And the lock on the back door, the lock that they believe may have been tampered with by the killers, well, that was gone too. Although Irma Rios, the manager of that very new crime lab, was in charge of the chain of custody for these items, she never took full responsibility or could explain how these things happened. This episode of Voices for Justice is brought to you by June's Journey. I'm pretty sure everyone here loves a good mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey. You get to step into the role of June Parker and search for hidden clues to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder. You engage your observation skills to quickly uncover key pieces of information that lead to chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. So what does that mean? Well, June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game. Essentially, you find hidden clues and uncover this mystery. But it's also more than that. You can customize your own luxurious estate island, you can join a detective club, and put your skills to the test in a detective league. I like that you can play totally alone, or if you want to play with other people, you can do that too. I find myself playing June's Journey in little breaks during the day, or most frequently at night before I go to bed. Whether you're craving a good mystery or just looking for an escape, I really do recommend June's Journey. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. You know that's the sound of another sale on your online Shopify store. But did you know Shopify powers selling in person too? That's right. Shopify is the sound of selling everywhere. Online, in store, on social media, and beyond. <coughs> Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in line and online. 
Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go Mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash crimes, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash crimes to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash crimes. After processing the scene, the medical examiner's office did finally recover the bodies of Jennifer, Sarah, Eliza, and Amy in order for autopsies to be completed. However, Jones would later state that he's pretty sure that by the time the girls got to Dr. Tommy J. Brown, the man who would perform these autopsies, that he had already heard an earful from Les Carpenter, who, if you don't remember from part one, was the deputy medical examiner in charge while the chief medical examiner was out of town. And after fighting with Jones about performing tests on the girls on the scene, he reluctantly gave in while pretty much just kicking and screaming. So, Jones reports that Dr. Brown was less than friendly when he and Huckabee showed up to his office. And ultimately, both men would blame Les Carpenter for Dr. Brown doing what they believed was a rushed job. In their opinion, it was just less thorough than other autopsies they'd seen. One major issue was that they weren't even tested for accelerant. This wasn't done on the scene or after the fact. Apparently, the reason for it not being done at the scene was because nobody smelt any type of accelerant. There was no gas, there was no hairspray, there was nothing that would indicate that an accelerant was used. But no one really knows why Dr. Brown didn't perform this test during the autopsies, other than maybe this tiff between the Austin PD and the ME's office. But the autopsies were able to determine some pretty crucial things about the girls. Sarah Harbison had been sexually assaulted though they couldn't confirm that it had been done with the ice cream scoop found between her legs. They also recovered two sets of male DNA from Jennifer Harbison. After questioning her boyfriend, it was confirmed that she visited him a few hours before going to work and they had sex. So one set of the male DNA was confirmed to be his, but the other set remains unidentified. It was also confirmed that Amy Ayers was sexually assaulted, and they were able to find a single strand of DNA. This would be put into CODIS, which was a pretty new system in 1991, but no match was found at the time. By the afternoon after the girls were found, the Austin Police Department decided that in order to maintain the integrity of the investigation and to ensure that they would be able to bring the perpetrator to justice beyond a shadow of a doubt, they held back the following 13 pieces of information about the case from the public. 1. How and where the fire was started. 2. That the key was still in the front door when firefighters arrived. 3. The amount of money taken from the store. 4. The arrangement of the girls' bodies. 5. What was used to tie the girls up. 6. The office key was found under the cash register. 7. No one entered the office. 8. Two of the girls' underwear was missing. 9. Both 22 and 380 caliber guns were used in the murders. 10. Amy's brother's leather bomber jacket was missing. 11. The bruise under Amy's chin. 12. That Amy was strangled and what she was strangled with. 13. 
that Amy was shot twice with two different guns. Unfortunately, a lot of this privileged information was already getting out around town. People knew that some of the girls' bodies had been stacked, that one girl was shot twice, and they even knew about the ice cream scoop. On Monday morning, the Austin PD put out a nationwide dispatch to other police departments. This had details of the case, and it asked them to reach out to them if they had any similar crimes in their jurisdictions. And not too long after, the local newspaper, The Statesman, which in my opinion would ultimately be a huge detriment to this case, ran a front-page story quoting the investigators talking about details such as what the girls were tied up with, and that the back door of the shop was not locked and the front door was. And on Tuesday, the Austin PD themselves released even more information. They said that they believed that there were two perpetrators, and that Amy Ayers had been shot in the head twice while the other girls were only shot once in the back of the head. They also released that they believed it was a robbery. These are small details, but it could be the difference between catching the person who did this and a wrongful conviction, which, as I've already mentioned, will become a major issue in this case. And hindsight is twenty twenty, right? I don't think that the media or the Austin PD were purposely trying to hurt this investigation. I think the city of Austin and their police department had never seen a case like this and they didn't really know what to do. It's also clear that the city was an absolute wreck over the murders of these four young girls and they were demanding answers. So both the media and the police were trying to give them those answers, not really knowing the damage that they were doing. The residents of Austin were obviously extremely terrified and sad. The Lanier School community, student body, and faculty and staff have been saddened by the tragic deaths of four young ladies for whom we mourn today. They're grieving for their classmates. Three of the victims were students at Lanier High School. Today, the students tried to deal with the loss and their pain together. This is probably the worst, most heinous crime that has happened in the city ever. Students are encouraged to talk about their feelings. A team of counselors is at the school to help them. There are so many questions and fears now about things many of these teenagers never even thought about. I mean, they died and they were so, you know, they were our age. And I mean, it makes you really think, you know, tomorrow is a promise. And I mean, anybody here may not be here tomorrow. And it's just scary and it hurts. Man, I mean, you don't ever think anybody's going to come into a yogurt place and shoot you. I mean, it's just and shoot you and all your friends. This just doesn't happen in the yogurt place. <laughs> and in addition to the case getting just a huge amount of press, people came out in droves to help with the search for the person that killed these girls. More than 100 co-workers, friends, and even some who don't know the families of the four girls stood in line waiting for their chance to help. Inside the packets are the tools to canvas the neighborhood near the yogurt shop, keeping the memory of the girls and the crime alive. For Donna Robinson and her daughter Tracy, there is pain. There's also anger and determination. I hope they realize we're not going to give up until they're found. Help. These high school students are some of the dozens who joined forces at five area malls today. For those who knew the girls, handing out these flyers is part of the healing. It helps just a lot to feel that I'm actually a part of it to help to get capture this person because I would 
I want to see these people put behind bars. It seems like almost overnight, the small-town feel of Austin, Texas disappeared as the reality of the murders set in. There was also a lot of scrutiny on Bryce Foods, the parent company of I Can't Believe It's Yogurt. And their CEO, Bill Bryce, flew from Dallas to meet with the girls' families and to announce his offer of a $25,000 reward for information leading to the arrest of the person or people who killed the girls. He also took this time to defend himself, saying that he had hundreds of stores all around the world, including two more stores in the state of Texas. He explained that this shop was no different from the others in terms of who they hired and leaving them alone. He hired a lot of teenage girls who closed together alone all the time. And this was their first murder. But eventually, the families would bring a civil suit against Bryce Foods. And they would ultimately settle out of court for $12 million. On Tuesday, December 10th, 1991, there was a funeral held for all four girls. Over 1,500 people attended, including the mayor and the chief of police. Jennifer, Sarah, and Amy were buried side-by-side at the Capitol Memorial Gardens, while Eliza was buried closer to her family's home at the Austin Memorial Park Cemetery. All funeral expenses were covered by Bryce Foods. Investigators actually taped the entire ceremony just in case the perpetrators were in the crowd watching, and they even had officers posted at their graves doing surveillance, just in case. Christmas and New Year's came and went, but on January 3rd, Jones was right back to work. And it was at this time that Jones wrote Police Chief Jim Everett a memo updating him on the investigation and asking him for help. Jones explained that the amount of phone tips had dramatically slowed down, and he discussed his interviews with all known employees and customers that were at the Hillside Strip Mall on the night of the murders. He also informed the chief that the FBI Behavioral Science Unit intended on creating a personality profile of the offenders, and that they suggested going to the media with that profile, specifically Unsolved Mysteries and America's Most Wanted. Jones then explained that while he appreciated having four patrolmen to aid in the investigation, that he needed four investigators solely dedicated to the case for at least 60 days, or until it was solved. And luckily, Chief Everett totally agreed, and he sanctioned a task force made up of officials from the Austin PD, the Austin Fire Department, the ATF, the FBI, Texas DPS Intelligence, the Travis County Sheriff's Office, and the Travis County DA's Office. After a day-long meeting with the FBI Behavioral Science Unit, they created that behavioral profile of the perpetrators. And per their recommendation, John Jones did go to the press stating that an arrest was imminent, which, of course, made the front page of the local newspaper The Statesman. By the following Monday, exactly one month after the murders, they held a press conference where John Jones stated that he must have been misquoted about the arrest being imminent. However, he would later admit that this was a lie the FBI instructed him to tell the media, stating, quote, I did what the FBI told me to do, and I got slammed for it. End quote. But after this somewhat embarrassing issue, Jones then released their behavioral profile, stating the following five points. One, more than one person was involved in the murders, and one of them had a dominant personality. 
Two, they were probably white and in their late teens to mid-twenties. Three, and this is a long one, so stay with me. The perpetrator with the dominant personality probably didn't finish high school and was considered an underachiever with below-average grades and a discipline problem. This person probably had an explosive personality and is quick to get angry, especially while under the influence of drugs and alcohol. And they are incredibly impulsive without thinking about the consequences of their actions. They will engage in physical confrontation only when they have the upper hand. But they will not engage in confrontation without their friends present. They are probably unemployed or working a menial job. They will have a history of changing jobs, isn't a dependable employee, and has a history of being absent. They most likely live with and are dependent on an older person such as a parent. This person is probably very familiar with the area and frequents it often, most likely living in the neighborhood. They probably have a criminal history and are most likely abusive to women. This person most likely has no remorse for killing the victims, but is very anxious because things may not have gone as planned. They are also extremely concerned about their accomplices because they are most likely experiencing a lot of regret. They theorize that this would create a lot of paranoia between the perpetrators and possibly lead to violence amongst themselves. 4. Although the perpetrators would not have a lot of blood on them, they most likely immediately cleaned up and changed their clothing after the murders. 5. The perpetrators might have returned to the scene of the crime to watch police and fire departments. They may have left town and they may have missed some days of work. This profile would appear as an entire page in the Statesman, with a headline of, quote, Many people know this killer. Do you? End quote. By February, Jones and his team were given more office space, more equipment, and more money for overtime to help solve the murders. Jones would later state that he was essentially given whatever he needed for the investigation, and that no one wanted to be the person that hindered it. They knew the entire world was watching. And they still had a lot of work to do, with at least 50 more witnesses to interview. By the end of the month, 12 billboards with the girls' faces and the words, Who Killed These Girls, were placed strategically around the city. Over time, there would be 20 more put up as the reward money rose to $100,000. Let's get into some of the leads and the suspects in this case. In my opinion, one of the things that makes this such a large and complicated case to the point that I have to have so many parts on it is this section right here. Because even at this point, just a few months into the investigation, there were an insane amount of leads and about 800 suspects. There are also numerous confessions. So let's get into it. While Jones was holding down the fort and running the team, Huckabay and Chuck Meyer from the ATF were interviewing as many people as they could. They interviewed convicted serial killers, a young man who had extremely violent episodes, including raping his younger sister, and notably, two people that in 1990 used small caliber pistols to rob a bowling alley, shoot the staff execution style, and then set the building on fire. But every interview ended the same in a dead end with no solid connection to the yogurt shop murders. At this time, the Austin Police Department was also watching another case very closely. See, just a few weeks after the yogurt shop murders, a woman named Colleen Reed had been taken from an Austin car wash. She was then sexually assaulted and killed. 
It wouldn't be until 1998 when a man named Kenneth McDuff, who had been sentenced to death for another murder, finally gave the location of Colleen's body to authorities. He did this in exchange for a more favorable sentence for his nephew, who was being held on drug charges. McDuff never actually officially confessed to killing Colleen Reed, but he told authorities where her body was buried, along with the locations of two other women that he had raped and murdered. And ultimately, he would never confess to killing the girls from the yogurt shop murders either. But some people still believe that Kenneth McDuff was the true killer of the girls, and that the secret died with him when he was executed in 1998. The Austin Police Department also got a ton of prank calls and false leads. There was one man who said that he'd seen the killers put yogurt inside of the girls' vaginas. When the police followed up, he said he never made the call, but when he was confronted with the audio of the call, he said that he was just joking. There was a woman who called in to say that it was her boyfriend that was the killer, and another man that said that his friend told him that he'd killed the girls and cut them up into pieces. There was a report of chickens being put inside of the girls, that the KKK was involved, that the girls' heads were chopped off, pretty much anything you could imagine. Honestly, some of the confessions are just so disgusting that I don't even want to repeat them on this podcast. And since according to investigators, they didn't hold any weight, I won't. But again, pretty much any disgusting thing you could imagine was said about the murder of these girls. A more promising lead came from the night of the murders. In part one, I discussed reports of a Hispanic man sitting in a light-colored car outside of the yogurt shop near closing time. Well, a few months after the murders, the Austin PD ended up putting out a composite sketch for him, and the tips began pouring in. Some residents quickly identified 19-year-old Armando Razo as someone who resembled the sketch and as someone who had pretty odd behavior that would go along with the FBI behavioral profile of the suspected perpetrators. Following the murders, Razo actually quit his job at the Sonic Drive-In and told his friends he was going into hiding. But before the Austin PD could even get to him for questioning, the statesman ran with the story and the headline, Teen Arrested in Yogurt Shop Murders. This is one of countless incorrect and, in my opinion, trigger-happy headlines. When Jones was actually able to interview Razo, not only was he able to provide a solid alibi, but he had three witnesses to vouch for him. Razo was definitely in trouble with the law, but he did not kill the girls. A more likely match for the sketch would come from Mexican nationalist Alberto Jimenez Cortez. And people said that if he was involved, surely his two buddies, Ricardo Hernandez and Porfirio Villa Saavedra, were involved as well. All three men were actually already wanted for the kidnapping and rape of a woman at an Austin nightclub about a month before the yogurt shop murders. But like Jones and Huckabee promised each other, they weren't going to jump to arrest that easily. They wanted to gather more information first. So, in the summer of 1992, the case and the sketch were featured on America's Most Wanted. And people continued to identify the person in the sketch as Alberto Cortez. So, the Austin PD went after Cortez, Hernandez, and Saavedra. Jones did notify the families, but he warned them not to get their hopes up. 
but it did look pretty promising. The men were known for drug trafficking, brutality, and crimes against women. And they conveniently left town right after the murders. At this point, Chuck Meyer requested permission for he and bilingual ATF agent Jack Barnett to be able to make the trip to Mexico City once all three men were located. Jones, of course, really wanted to go as well, but he was told to hang back because if he went, then the entire city would get wind of how serious of a lead this was. In August of 1992, the Austin PD actually struck a deal with the Mexican consulate. They would hand over the kidnapping and rape case from the Austin nightclub. And in exchange, the Austin PD would be allowed to interrogate the three men once they were found. No one was really fond of this deal, but it seemed like their only option at the time. By October, Saavedra and Cortez were arrested on suspicion of being involved in the yogurt shop murders. And they were flown to Mexico City, where they were then charged with the kidnapping and rape of the woman from the Austin nightclub, as well as drug trafficking and gun smuggling. They weren't being charged with the yogurt shop murders just yet, but this meant that they were at least able to question the men about the case. This was kind of a big deal. The DA's office even put out the following statement, quote, Not only the people of Texas, but the entire United States has grieved with us over our loss. This case represents an unprecedented level of cooperation, and we look forward to continuing to work with the Mexican officials, end quote. But they had a major problem. Mexico's deputy attorney general was absolutely against extradition of his citizens to the United States. So, although they did agree to let U.S. authorities question the three men, they didn't say anything about extraditing them to the United States for prosecution. And this was a major issue for the Austin PD, because both Cortez and Saavedra would ultimately confess to killing all four girls. When reporters approached Saavedra and asked him why he did it, he just shook his head, and authorities took him away. Later that day, it was reported that he, quote, forced the girls to submit, then he raped them, tied them up, and shot them, end quote. Jones again warned the girls' families not to get their hopes up. But how could you not? Jennifer and Sarah's mother would state that she immediately got sick to her stomach, end quote. You want to feel good about it, but it brings the reality back, end quote. The thing is, Jones wasn't really convinced that these were the guys, that these were the guys that killed Jennifer, Eliza, Sarah, and Amy. So, when Mexican officials asked for the autopsy reports, Jones refused. He told author Beverly Lowry, quote, If we'd done that, they'd have every piece of information they needed to charge them, try them, find them guilty, put them away for life and we weren't convinced that they were even there, end quote. And pretty quickly, Saavedra's story started to fall apart. When he was questioned by Huckabay and another Austin PD official, he'd said that maybe he killed three girls that night, mutilated them, and tied them up with rope, which, as we know, does not match up with the way that the girls were actually killed. By the end of the first day of questioning, the Austin Police Department was certain that these were not the men responsible for the yogurt shop murders. And both Saavedra and Cortez would ultimately recant their confessions. 
They stated that while they were on the plane to Mexico City, officials threatened to hurt their families, including violating their wives, daughters, and sisters. And they stated that the officials kept putting plastic bags over their heads. When Huckabee confronted Cortez about the witness statement placing him at the yogurt shop that night, he stated, quote, I wasn't there. I didn't see who did it. Perhaps you will find me guilty. I'm going to tell you this. I was never there, and I never did any of that. It could have been someone that looked like me. I'm not the only one who has long hair or the only car. Does she have a license plate? She should have given a license plate. They're going to dispose of my life, my time, and my thoughts. And do you know what? You can give me the death penalty. And I'm going to die telling the truth. Because I didn't do anything. End quote. Saavedra would express a similar sentiment, stating, quote, Just because I'm a criminal doesn't mean I killed them. That's not what that means. I know you're going to take me, but I will never say that I did something I did not do. This is a total waste. Since I am a criminal, then no one believes me. End quote. Ultimately, Hernandez, the third man believed to have been possibly associated with the crime, was never caught. Saavedra and Cortez would be tried and convicted of the kidnapping and rape of the woman from the Austin nightclub. But after years of back and forth with the Mexican authorities, the men were never charged in the yogurt shop murders. The families of the girls would hold on to hope for years that these were the men that were the true perpetrators of the crime. And like Kenneth McDuff, there are still people that believe that these three men are responsible for killing the girls. By the one-year anniversary of the yogurt shop murders, morale was really down. The girl's parents wanted answers about the Mexican nationalists, and Jones and Huckabee were convinced that they didn't do it. The case was taking its toll on both Huckabee and Jones, but John Jones's life was pretty much being torn apart by it. The case was all-consuming for him. He developed relationships with these families and felt a great responsibility to get answers for them, not only on a professional level, but on a personal level. And it was affecting all areas of his life, his marriage, his kids, and his mental health. Jones would spend the entire anniversary of the murders catching up on sleep. You can really tell that the families trusted Jones. And one thing that I read that really touched my heart in this case was that one day, Jones and Amy Ayer's father were at a basketball game. And Amy's father turned to Jones and told him that he looked really bad. And he even suggested that he take a break from the case. This man, this father, who desperately wanted answers for his daughter's murder, was somehow able to put his personal wants and needs aside for the case to be solved and have enough compassion for Jones to understand that he really needed this break. I think it's just a huge testament to how much they all genuinely cared for each other. And I have to say, I don't see that a lot. Jones would ask for a 15-day administrative leave, but he was denied. It would take a letter from his psychiatrist explaining that he was exhibiting 90% of PTSD symptoms and recommending a one-month leave for Jones to get some time off to recover. But he wouldn't even use all 30 days before feeling compelled to come back. But like a lot of investigators, Jones's passion for the case wasn't rewarded, and ultimately he would be reassigned. 
much to the dismay of the families, and much to the dismay of Jones himself, who had never asked to be fully reassigned. I think that there were a lot of contributing factors to the frustration and the burnout of Jones. There was a lot of turnover in leadership at the Austin Police Department, and policies and procedures were constantly changing. People were being pulled and then reassigned to cases, including the yogurt shop murders. And undoubtedly, one of the worst, most damaging players to be pulled from the case was a man named Hector Polanco. As Jones would say, quote, Everybody has a Hector story. Everybody. End quote. Senior Sergeant Hector Polanco was kind of a hotshot in the Austin Police Department in the 80s and 90s. Not only for his good looks and confidence, but because he miraculously had a 100% clearance rate on his cases, with a very special knack for getting confessions without evidence. When people would ask him, you know, how was he just so good at his job, Polanco would state that he just had a special ability, that he was able to grab the truth right from the hearts of the people that he interrogated. People in the community knew him as the Boogeyman, or El Diablo, while other officers and lawyers would refer to him as the Cobra. Unfortunately, at this time during his heyday in the 80s and 90s, this concept of false or coerced confessions wasn't as widely discussed as it is today. People just couldn't wrap their head around the idea that someone would actually confess to something that they didn't do. And unfortunately, it would take decades for the confessions obtained by Polanco to come back to haunt him, way after many lives were already destroyed. In 1988, Polanco obtained a confession from a young man named Christopher Ochoa. This was in relation to the rape and murder of Nancy Dupriest. Ochoa immediately denied having any involvement, but after Polanco repeatedly told him that he would die if he didn't confess, that if this man didn't tell him right now that he committed this murder, he would make sure that he was sentenced to death. So, Ochoa said that he did it, and that his friend Richard Danzinger helped. In his mind, he knew that he was innocent, so he figured that he would just tell them, you know, what they wanted to hear right then and there and prove that innocence later. He would describe this moment, stating, quote, You're just like shaking because you don't know. If you knew, you'd tell them because you don't want to die. You're thinking, I don't want to die. I've got to think of something. End quote. His friend, Richard Danzinger, would maintain his innocence throughout the entire trial. But ultimately, both men were sentenced to life in prison. Six years into their sentence, an inmate in a Texas prison would write letters to the police and media claiming that he was the man that killed Nancy DePriest. But it would take another six years before DNA evidence would prove this to be true. And both Ochoa and Danzinger would be released after serving 12 years for a crime that they never committed. Unfortunately, by that time, Danzinger had already been viciously beaten in prison to the point where he actually had to have parts of his brain removed, and he was never the same. But when Hector Polanco was working on the yogurt shop murders, we didn't know any of this. So, he applied his very special skills to obtain several confessions in this case. 
In February of 1992, Polanco interrogated inmate Sean Smith, who reportedly was bragging about killing the girls. He took him into an interrogation room alone with no recording equipment, and six hours later, he had a confession. Must have been those special skills. But Jones was actually pretty excited about this one, thinking that it could have actually finally been solved. But after a little more digging and a polygraph test, it appeared that Smith didn't kill those girls. He did have information relevant to the case, but nothing that wasn't already confirmed to have been leaked to the public. When asked why he signed the confession, Smith admitted that Polanco actually made him believe that he did it. The next month, Polanco obtained another confession from Alex Briones, who was accused of raping and burning a woman to death. Again, the interview was done with just Polanco in a room without any recording devices. After obtaining the confession, he called Jones and Huckabee to announce that he had the man that killed Sarah, Jennifer, Amy, and Eliza. But the thing was, he would only talk to Polanco and no one else. Huckabee wasn't having any of this, and after talking to Briones for himself, he came out of that room and told his team that that was not the guy. Briones would later break down and say that he didn't kill the girls and only said he did because Polanco threatened him and told him what to say. Within 10 days, Polanco was taken off the yogurt shop murders case and eventually let go after an investigation by internal affairs. But he would later sue the department for discrimination and ultimately be reinstated. He would receive more promotions and he would retire with full benefits and pension. He would be replaced by Senior Sergeant Ron Smith. And Smith himself had a pretty colorful past with the department. He actually shot and killed an unarmed 17-year-old boy. And he sat on the head of a handcuffed man while he was on a waterbed, ultimately leading to him being smothered to death. Years would go by with more leads, more changes in the department, and more scandals. In October of 1995, the Austin Police Department created a task force specifically to target drug trafficking and money laundering. But undercover informants quickly accused the members of the Austin PD of protecting the drug dealers in exchange for sexual favors, cocaine, and all-expense-paid trips to the Super Bowl. A lot of people believe that by January of 1996, Chief Watson announcing that they would be taking a fresh look at the yogurt shop murders was kind of to distract everyone from all of the scandals. Assigned to this new, fresh look at the case was homicide detective Paul Johnson, but he was only doing it part-time. Johnson was kind of known for being a lone wolf and a stickler for details. So it was kind of perfect for him because his job was basically to comb back through all of Jones's and Huckabee's work for any missed opportunities or leads. And by all accounts, Johnson quickly became as obsessed with the case as Jones had been. At this point, there were more than 1,200 suspects. There were also 5,000 pages of handwritten notes and over 10,000 pages of reports. One big thing he wanted to do was revisit the confessions from the Mexican nationalists Cortez and Saavedra, but he wasn't able to move much along with the Mexican government. And as for the other 1,197 suspects, he didn't find anything in the database that would result in an arrest or conviction. But on July 31st, 1997, there would be even more turnover in the Austin Police Department when Chief Watson left Austin for a job with the Department of Justice. She was replaced with Bruce Mills as the interim chief. 
And Mills quickly gave Johnson a brand new team to exclusively work on the yogurt shop murders. And this is when they went way back to 1991 and revisited the confession of 16-year-old Maurice Pierce. On December 14, 1991, so about a week after the yogurt shop murders, Maurice was arrested at the North Cross Mall after reports came in that he was walking around with a 22 caliber pistol in one pocket and 16 bullets in the other. When Maurice was brought into custody, none other than Hector Polanco insisted on doing the interview. And by the next morning, he had a confession for the yogurt shop murders. This confession not only incriminated himself, but his friends as well. Despite this confession being immediately discredited by Jones in 1991, and again by Johnson in 1996, by 1997, it was determined that this lead had not been properly investigated or closed. When police questioned Maurice again, he would say, I don't stand by my confession, and that he, like so many others, felt forced by Polanco to confess. Luckily, the Austin PD actually still had the pistol that was taken from Maurice in 1991, so they sent the gun off to be tested to see if it was used in the crime. And the results were a definitive no. The gun that was taken from Maurice was absolutely not used in the yogurt shop murders. But investigators weren't convinced, and they started to chip away at his friends that were with him in the days after the murders. These friends were Forrest Welburn, who was 15 at the time of the murders, and Robert Springsteen and Michael Scott, who were both 17 at the time of the murders. And before long, they obtained two more confessions, one from Robert and one from Michael, while Maurice and Forrest maintained their innocence. Despite the gun not matching, despite Maurice recanting his confession from when he was 16 years old, and despite Polanco's unscrupulous interview tactics being more well-known to the Austin PD at this time, by the end of 1999, Maurice Pierce, Robert Springsteen, Forrest Wellborn, and Michael Scott would be arrested for the murders of Sarah, Jennifer, Eliza, and Amy. The thing about this case is it's so hard to get all of the information into one episode, or at least all of the information that I find to be pretty important into one episode. So I hope that breaking it up into these types of chunks helps you better absorb it, because for me, it really does help me better tell you the story. So with that being said, in the next episode, we're going to dive deep into these four men, what they were doing around the time of the murders, their interrogations, their confessions, and their eventual trials, as well as where the case stands today. Because in my opinion, there is more hope than ever to get justice for these girls. But as always, thank you, I love you, and I'll talk to you next time. Voices for Justice is hosted and produced by me, Sarah Turney. For more information about the podcast, to suggest a case, to see resources used for this episode, and to find out more about how to help the cases I discuss, visit VoicesForJusticePodcast.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to rate and review the show in your podcast player. 
it really does help more people find the podcast and these cases in need of justice. 